0: Um, Okay, today we're going to look at Psalm 139. We're jumping almost to the end of the Psalms, and uh, it's a wonderful Psalm that it's incredibly impactful, and I thought this would be a good one for us to turn to. So let's read just the first six verses of Psalm 139, and then I'll pray, and we'll uh, take this thing apart piece by piece. It says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and I cannot attain it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do recognize that the expansive knowledge of who you are is so great. There's no way we could wrap our minds completely around it. But we do know that you have revealed yourself in your word enough that we may be able to know you, we may be able to understand ourselves better. And we pray this morning that you would help us to do that, that you would help us to, to search our hearts and to know you more this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as I was looking at this text and thinking through... Uh, kind of our culture at large. I think we're a, a group of people who really prize our privacy. We care about our privacy, right? I can't listen to a podcast or watch a YouTube video without getting an ad for a VPN, virtual private network. I'm sure you guys, I see some heads nodding. Yes, you know what this is. Well, I remember when I was in the army, like, 10 years ago or something, and I was working in the radio department of this brigade headquarters. It was kind of like an IT department, we'll say. They wanted me to set up the network, and it was on a VPN. At the time, I was like, this is like top secret, military-grade encryption. I thought it was like a big deal, and then nowadays, everybody has a VPN. So apparently, it's not that big of a deal, but at the time, I thought it was kind of crazy that we have these encrypted... Uh, network that we were on because we cared so much about protecting this top secret information. And nowadays, apparently, you know, our our you know social media history is top secret information or something like that. So we have to have VPNs now. But the thing is, I think that personal privacy, especially on the internet, is kind of a myth, right? I think Google knows everything. Like I uh, last week, I went camping with um, the Antisdales and my wife and the family. And we've been looking over the last few months about like all this different camping gear. We need like tents and we need all this different things. So I I can remember multiple times, maybe you've experienced this where you're talking with a friend, a family member about something, and then all of a sudden you'll see on your feed will come up an ad for that exact thing that you were talking about. And you're like, is it listening? I think these devices are listening to us at all times. So our privacy is really not something that Exists, I don't think. I think in our current situation, it's just it's hard to keep uh, people out of knowing everything about us. And if it's in, if it's hard for us to uh, prohibit, you know, advertising companies from finding things about about us, there's no way we can prohibit God from knowing all things about our lives, right? And that's really what is highlighted in the Psalm. Our God not only knows everything that happens in our lives; He is also actively involved in every part of our life from the present, the past, and the future. And this is a truth that's both awesome, but it's also kind of terrifying, right? There's a little bit of unsettling that happens with this. In addition to this, one thing I was thinking of is is the issue of intimacy in relationships. One of the most difficult parts of building healthy relationships is being is allowing others to know us in a way that maybe others don't. And of course, this is exemplified in the marriage relationship, but it's also in every relationship, there has to be a healthy level of understanding between people. If we keep people always at arm's length and keep a surface level relationship with them, there's no way that they can really know us and we can't know them and we can't build a meaningful relationship together. And so it's hard for us to let people into our lives, right? And why is that so difficult? Well, basically because we're messed up people, and when we let someone into your life, chances are they're going to let you down, right? They're going to use the information that they learn about your life, and then they may um, do things that would be detrimental to you, and it will hurt your, um, you know, psychology and those sorts of things. It's a difficult thing to let people in and to open up ourselves, and really that's what we see in this psalm, David opening up himself to God. But being known by other people is a challenge for us, and it's even more difficult, it seems, to open up to God and let God know the deepest things in our our hearts. Um, What's interesting about this psalm, I notice, is that David uses the word I, me, my uh, nearly 50 times, but he never really uses we, us, or the people of God. He doesn't use the corporate pronouns. He's talking about himself, right? And that's not to say that the truths in this psalm do not apply to other people, but I think what's interesting is that this psalm gives us a good model for um, honest, worship-saturated, self-reflective meditation. That's what we see in this text. It's a prayer about knowing God and allowing Him to know us. So the main takeaway I think we see in this psalm is is this. God knows every part of who you are, uh, yet He loves us anyways. Let that sink in a minute right? God knows everything about you. He's, he knows every thought you've ever had, every action you've ever taken, every mistake you've ever made in the past or ever will make. He knows all those things, and yet still, he longs for you to reach out, grab his hand, and for him to lead you in the way everlasting. It's a mind-blowing truth, and it's one that we see throughout this psalm in amazing ways. What's more about God, though, we can trust him, right? Unlike maybe some of our fellow uh, people. People can let us down at times, but God never will. God is always someone we can trust with our, um, with our secrets, right? Because he's not flawed like us. He's not going to let us down. Now, the way that this psalm is structured is called synthetic parallelism. You remember uh, Ray came a few weeks ago and he mentioned how Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme with the sounds of the words like modern poetry does or um, the poetry that maybe we're more familiar with. It actually rhymes in thoughts. And so what we see in this text is that the first six verses that I just read is kind of like the first, the core message of the whole psalm. And then each of the stanzas are like parallel echoes of that first one. Um, so imagine sort of standing on a lakeside, let's say a flat lake, it's calm, and, and on the other side of the lake is a, is a mountain range. And as you yell, your voice goes out, it hits the mountains, and comes back in multiple reverberating echoes, right? So you say like, echo. And then it comes back, echo, echo, echo. So that's kind of what's happening in this psalm. It's a beautiful way that he lays it out. And uh, also, in addition to that, he highlights the way God is active and involved in every time frame of our life, our current, present life, our past, and into our future. So verses one through six, if we look back at it briefly, it just says, you know, when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar and you search out my path. He's talking about David's current life and his situation. And then as we look into the next verse, uh, verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. So even in his past, even before he says what he's going to say, even before he took his first steps or took took his first breath, God knew what was happening. And then verse 5, you hem me in behind and before, behind and in front of, right? So God is also laying his hand upon him into the future. And of course, this leads him finally in verse 6 just to, sort of explode in worship to God, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too hard for me to get my head around. And each of those elements then we'll see kind of expand out as we go through the rest of the psalm. One of the things, though, in this first section that I think is worth noting is interesting to think about is that our God is a God uh, that we can depend upon because he is not something that humans could have invented. Um, I think about all of the, the false gods or the, um, you know, idols and images that humanity has created over the years. One example in, in current, you know, society would be the little G god of thunder, Thor, right? From the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Of course, he was a Norse god before Marvel took him and made him all this, you know, fantastic comic book character. But uh, that is a god who's basically like a strong man who's attractive. He's just sort of a, a super awesome person. He's someone we can understand, but at the same time, he has flaws. He has problems. He makes mistakes and all those sorts of things. Our God, as depicted in this section, is nothing like the gods that we have invented, right? And that gives me a lot of confidence to know that this is not a God that has been fabricated. Our God is a God you cannot fully wrap your mind around, uh, which gives me confidence. That makes me... Uh, Assure that what we're looking at here in the scriptures and the God that we're talking about is the one and only true God, not some creation that humans have made up in their minds and written down into the text of the Bible. Uh, A couple of important elements of who God is are highlighted here in these first few verses, and they're known by theologians by a few different terms, so I'm going to throw them out to you. The first is, God is omniscient, omniscient. You've probably heard the word before, but basically it's the state of knowing everything. Omni and science are the two Latin parts of that. Omni meaning all, science meaning knowledge. God has all knowledge about everything. Uh, The other element or the other characteristic of God is omnipresence, right? All presence, all place. God is everywhere all the time. It's a state of being everywhere at the same time, which is kind of like mind-blowing. It's difficult for us to get our head around. And so maybe this little cartoon will be helpful for you a little, uh, you know, visual aid for you. If, if God went to the mall and he went to that little, that map in the mall and it says like, you are here, he would have, you are here all over the map, right? Cause he is literally everywhere all at the same time. Unlike us, we are in one place in time. God is everywhere all at once. And he's able to know and uh, understand everything that's happening, which is really mind blowing. And in this opening stanza, we see David declare that God is this all-knowing, ever-present, and that leads him again to burst out into praise in verse 6. And it's kind of praise, and it's also a little bit like fear, a little bit like curiosity, confusion. I can't attain it. I can't understand it, Um, which is kind of an amazing thing. Uh, But the next thing that we move into is really that next few verses in verse 7, and this is going to focus on David's current, present situation in life. Um, And it says this Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Take the wings of the morning and dwell in the othermost parts of the sea. Even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is bright as day, for darkness is as light to you. So here kind of is that first reverberating echo coming back from the mountainside after we looked at that first one through six. Now we see him reflecting on how God is omniscient and omnipresent in his current situation, right? The literary device that David is using in this section is called hyperbole. Um, which I'll give you a definition for. Hyperbole is an exaggerated statement or claims not meant to be taken literally. And I'm sorry if I'm giving you a lot of vocab, but I was an English teacher for a few years, and it's just a habit. I can't break. Um, Don't worry. There won't be a quiz, I, I think, but we'll see. So hyperbole, what is David doing here when he says, um, when he says like ascend into heaven? There's no way that he could actually ascend into heaven, right? But he's using it. He's exaggerating to show even to the place that he could never get to the heavens, the galaxies, the stars, or perhaps he's has in mind the spiritual place where the angels dwell. Um, that is beyond our world, right? Whether, whichever he's speaking of, he's talking about a place that is so high he could never get to. And then he jumps down to Sheol. He says, even if I make my bed in Sheol, um, he couldn't descend, you know? God will meet him there. And Sheol is the lower parts of the earth. It's the place of the dead or the grave. And so he's just saying, from the highest highs to the lowest lows, God, you will be there. You will know where I am. You will be able to see me even if I'm covered in darkness. So this is what he's talking about, hyperbole. And if you have little kids, you know hyperbole. They love hyperbole. I, every time I take my son to the grocery store, 60 seconds into being there, only 60 seconds, inevitably he will, he will say like, Dad, when are we gonna leave? We've been here a million years, right? A million years. And it's like, this is the exaggeration. David's doing that in a much more mature and poetic fashion, right? He's exaggerating. And he's, he's bringing to light these amazing things pictures for us so we can see no matter where you go, God is there. And we see it. it, We see it, honestly, this should kind of set, unsettle us a little bit. Like I was saying, it's a little bit terrifying to know that God is always with us. He's, he's always watching, especially if we're doing things that we ought not to be doing. Um, And I remember thinking about this as a kid. It was the one thing that stuck with me all always. God is inescapable, right? He's inescapable. And that should sort of unsettle us, but it should not surprise us. If God truly is God, we should expect that he would have this ability to always know everything and be everywhere. What should shock all of us, really, is that even though he sees everything that you have done and he knows every place that you have been, he still chooses to allow us to live. Right? He allows us to live, and beyond that, he longs to guide us out of the messes that we have made by the hand and pull us out of the sins and the issues that we've committed. Verse 10 is an encouraging me one. It says, even there, and he's talking about in my darkest times, in, in the highest highs and the lowest lows, your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. Even though we've sinned against God, right, we've committed things that we are not Um, We are ashamed to admit that we probably hide from others, but he knows it all, and he still longs for us to reach out our hand, grab his, and for him to lead us out of those messes. So God is active and involved in our present life. Um, The next section, though, verses 13, and we'll go all the way to verse 18, looks now at the distant past. It says this, "'For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb.'" How precious to me are your thoughts, O God? How vast is the sum of them? If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. So now we see he kind of reflects upon the fact that God is omniscient and omnipresent now, even in our distant past. It highlights that God is active in creation of every human being from the moment of conception, right? David relays how God saw his unformed substance, that amazing and miraculous moment when new DNA comes into existence and a new whole human person is created in the womb when it's just this, he says, unformed substance. Um, a, A current modern day term that some people like to use is a clump of cells, right? This is what is in view. It's not also as if God just invented the process by which humans make new humans, he didn't just tell Adam and Eve, go be fruitful and multiply, and I won't be involved in you know, your family planning and your children. And you just go ahead and do it. I created the way to do it, now go do it. That's not what we see here. In this psalm, God is actively involved in the creation of life. God, or David rather, depicts God as a skilled craftsman who's meticulously weaving together, knitting together. Um, sort of like an ornate rug on a loom. I don't know if you've seen something like this, maybe at a Renaissance fair, sometimes you see it, or people do it, where they cr- are creating these elaborate rugs. This is the way that some people still make rugs. Unfortunately, nowadays, it's mostly by machines, right? But once upon a time, it was done by craftsmen who took these bits of thread and weaved them in such a way to make this elaborate and beautiful rug. And that's really the picture that David is giving to us about how God is interacting with his creation And the product, right, of this miraculous uh, workmanship is you and it's me, a human being made in the image of God with innate value. We have value because God has specifically made us as his special creations, right? That is why life at every stage from conception throughout life to natural death should be protected. It should be cared for. It should be uh, loved, in light of recent events in our country, we have reason to celebrate, right? The, uh, the Supreme Court has returned the power to protect life back into the hands of voters in every state. And as a result, many states uh, have seen fit to protect life at different stages. Uh, it's difficult for us here in Oregon who want to protect life, and unfortunately, the political power seems to be held mostly by those who promote uh, abortion. And it's a difficult thing, but it's something that we should still try our best to pray for and overcome. Use everything that we can to, uh, to sort of deal with this issue. It's a difficult topic. It's one we don't often discuss or talk about directly. But here in this text, we see this miraculous truth that God is actively involved in the process and uh, of, of forming people's lives. And that should inspire us all to do what we can to protect life at every stage. Um, Some of you may know this, but my mother became pregnant with me when she was only 15. She was just a child, a teenager. Um, And she was obviously going through a time where she was pressured by a lot of different things. She could, all of her options were on the table there in Southern California. And she chose to protect life and to allow me to be born, um, which I'm obviously very grateful for. I would not be standing here today if she hadn't made that choice. And also if people around her, her support system, the friends and family that she had, weren't there to encourage her to, uh, you know, allow me to live the life that I'm living. And so I'm very grateful for that. But unfortunately, there are many who don't have that. And so I think that we can do a lot to help in this situation. I think the easiest thing we could do even just now is to just pray, pray for people who are in a situation where they don't, they feel overwhelmed they are maybe not sure what direction to go, these women, and we should pray for them, that they may have wisdom to make a choice that would protect life and that there would be people around them to help support them and help to lead them in that right choice. Um, you could also get involved with the local pregnancy care center. They do so much to help women and, and children and family in our, na- in our community who are in need, and we support them as a church uh, through the baby bottles and other things like that. So there's ways in which you can get involved with this. Um, and I think it's important that we do that to the best of our ability. Um, and so all life is worthy of protection, right? Because we are handcrafted. That's what the Psalm is telling us. We are handcrafted by God. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so we ought to do all we can. I should say, though, that the protection of human life, the value of human life in the womb, is not necessarily the main point of this text, right? It's one part of the overall theme that we see. The theme is that God is actively caring for us even before we are born. Our days are numbered in his book before we are even born. But even in the womb and at the earliest moments, he's active, engaged. And uh, that gives us a lot of hope. It gives us a lot of, uh, you know, something to think about with regard to how we are helping and facilitating to protect life. And, of course, God is doing this not just in the womb and early, but also on our entire lives and into the future. And I think that's where David goes next. He begins to look ahead into what is coming into the future. Starting in verse 19, it says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. I do not, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. That escalated quickly, right? That's a heavy few verses. But I think what David is recognizing is the beauty of life that God has created and the way that he's orchestrated it. And unfortunately, there are some who are not honoring it in all different ways, and that's leading him to just sort of break out in this anger. And I think I see some of David's hyperbole coming back. He's really trying to convince God, I care about justice just as much as you do, God. Uh, But of course, we know that's not the case. But something important not to overlook that is God is the just, perfect creator. And there are things that go on in our world, brokenness and injustice and evil that he hates. There are things that God hates. We read about that in Proverbs chapter 6. It says this, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. In these imprecatory psalms, which is what this is, it's an imprecation. Uh, which actually, yeah, we'll throw that definition, an imprecation that David is giving, which is an uh, invocation of judgment or calamity, a curse upon the enemies of God. So David is sort of taking the place of God in this, and he is sort of channeling what he knows about him, perhaps here from from the Proverbs, that God is a perfect creator, but he hates injustice. He hates evil and lies and discord, and these are the things that he uh, will not stand, right? And this is a scary fact that we cannot and should not avoid. That God, one day, will put an end to evil. He will slay those who do not throw themselves before Him, uh, in you know, at the feet of His mercy. Of course, and again, that's a difficult thing for us to to think about. But it's true, and we see it here in the psalm. So we ought not to look away. David was acting under the Levitical law, right? And he was the king. He had to uphold the Levitical law. That meant his duty was to bring justice to people who were doing evil deeds within the land, within his own land and outside of it. Now, you might be thinking, what about what Jesus said about enemies in the New Testament? And that's a, that's a good question. Let's look at that really quickly from Matthew chapter 5. It says this, you have heard that it was said, this is Jesus speaking, obviously, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's a quote from Leviticus. Um, But Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus here is acknowledging that he is ushering in a new way for God's people, right, to handle the world. Under the Old Testament law, the Levitical law, that David is is uh, under and sort of presiding over in some, some ways, he, it required the people of God to be very strict with how their laws worked and how their uh, enemies, to pres- it, the reason was to preserve their holiness, right? But Jesus came into our broken world to teach us uh, a better way. He didn't come to negate, right, or, or just do away with the old laws, so to speak. Rather, he came to fulfill them. See, blood must be paid for injustice and for sin, for wrongdoing. That is true. Death or life is required for the penalty of those actions. But the real miraculous thing is that Jesus himself offered his life up to be slain so that people like you and like me might have the hope of everlasting life, right? Right? Revelation chapter five depicts this beautiful scene. It says, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Of course, they're talking about Christ. For you were slain and your blood and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. In this vision of a heavenly worship scene that's taking place, Jesus is depicted as this perfect lamb who is coming uh, before the people and he gives his life as a ransom so that those of us who put our faith in his sacrifice might have the hope of eternal life and it has made us a kingdom and priests and this is people from all nations, all tongues. So this is um, a, a snapshot of the future, so to speak. People in the past, current people, people in the future. And so we see this beautiful and amazing truth that the gospel is that God pardoned the wicked by slaying his perfect son as a ransom for those who put their faith in him. In the next few verses, it seems like David realizes how strong his language was and maybe he wants to take a step back. Um, I think we kind of saw this from Psalm 27 last week as David was very confident and then he has this lull in the middle of his psalm I think we see something similar here. He, might, he realizes, maybe I spoke a little quickly. So verse 23 and 24 says, Search me, O God, know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He's thinking, maybe I have some blood on my hands. And that is definitely true. He has shed innocent blood as well. I'm not sure exactly when this psalm was written, before or after the events of Uriah the Hittite and the, The adultery that David committed with Bathsheba, but it's clear that David has many faults in his life, many grievous things, and so we see in these last few verses a repeat of the first few verses, right, Uh, which is called an inclusio, excuse me, inclusio. Pastor Aaron highlighted this from Psalm 8 a few weeks ago, and it's kind of a common way that Hebrew poetry works where the the first stanza and the last will repeat themselves and create kind of bookends to the whole psalm. But notice, instead of saying, like verse 1, you have searched me and known me, this changes. And it's pretty significant how this final two verses change. He changes it not to you have searched me, but rather search me and know my heart. Right? David at this point in the psalm recognizes that God knows everything. And that means he knows about his own sinful heart. And so the opening stanza might be about what God has done, and this closing line is about what David needs to do. How should he respond? Here he invites God to know his heart, David mm-hmm. does. He invites God, know my heart, look at what is going on in my life, and see if there are any things that need to be fixed. Um, in the beginning, he, David was kind of relaying these amazing facts about God, right? These, I, these ideas that were too massive for him to even think about. But in the end, he's declaring he actually wants to know God personally. And uh, a really good book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer has this quote, which I think is helpful for us to understand in this regard. He says, how can we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? The rule for doing this is simple but demanding. It is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into matter for meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. And I think this last stanza is David embodying this, so to speak. He's taking what he knows about God, and now he's turning it into personal meditation and praise before God, something that we all ought to do, right? We've learned a few new theological terms maybe for you today, and we've looked at a few ideas, some things about God that are mind-blowing, but if it just remains as things we know about God, and not things that move from our head to our heart to change and transform the, the, the personal relationship that we have with God, then we have, we have failed, right? We need to turn these truths about God into meditation and prayer before God. One of my favorite worship songs is based on the Psalm 139 uh, by a band called Citizens. Uh, the song is called You Have Searched Me. And it's basically all of Psalm 139. It's a beautiful song. Uh, I tried to get Cody to sing it, but it didn't quite work because it's not the best song for a corporate worship service. There are some songs that are just very personal. And so this one is kind of like that, but it's a beautiful song. And and the chorus is somewhat interesting because it says, uh, your kindness leads me to repentance. And that was a little strange at first when I was listening to it because I'm like, this is Psalm 139. That's not in Psalm 139. No, in fact, that comes from Romans chapter 2, verse 4 where we read, Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? As I thought about why this band chose to put this, you know, this verse into 139, um, it sort of began to make more sense to me. I think it was helpful for me that the kindness of God is revealed in this psalm, as I said earlier, that God knows absolutely everything about us. Every deed we've committed, all of those things he knows, and yet he still loves me. And in that kindness leads us to repentance. And Christ demonstrated um, that he loves us by going to the cross, sacrificing himself, and he demonstrated the, quote, the way everlasting when he rose again from the dead, overcame sin and death, and showed a way into everlasting life. And it is that kindness that should lead us to repentance. God knows you, that is clear, but do you know God? Have you invited him to know your heart? Um, Have you said, like David, search me, O God, and know my heart? For my fellow Christians in the room, this is not something that we just do once, right? This is something we need to do daily, probably more than once a day, to have these prayers with God to search us and know our hearts. This act of inviting God in to see if there are any sinful ways it needs to be happening constantly. Um, in a moment, we're going to celebrate communion together. And we intentionally build a part of our worship service as just music and self-reflection. And it is in those times that those of us who do put our trust in Christ ought to spend that time saying, search me, O God. Know my heart. Is there anything in my heart that, that I need to fix, that you need to fix in me, really? What sinful things, what grievous things are happening? And of course... You know, you name it, there are many, and I'm not going to go down the list, because I know that it's already in the back of your mind as I say it. And those are the things that David is, is asking God to help him bring to the surface so that he can allow God to transform him. Don't just settle for knowing things about God, for knowing theology terms, and knowing Bible verses, and keeping God at arm's length, and not opening up and, and doing this activity. Invite him in to know your heart and shape you more into the image of Christ. That's the goal. But maybe there's some in here today who have never made that step to follow Christ, who have never said those words that David does, search me, know my heart, lead me into the way everlasting. Perhaps that is you. Um, and maybe you need to pray that prayer in the moment of silence during communion. Um, I know it's a scary thought. It's, a, it's a scary to be vulnerable for a holy and a perfect God. Um, but we can be confident, right? That He will not lead us astray. He will never let us down because, unlike humans, He is perfect and He never makes mistakes. Um, kind of as we sung in one of the songs earlier, He is the only one we can truly be honest with, too, if we think about it. Because He already knows everything. You're not hiding anything from Him. He already knows, and He wants. He longs to know you. He, but. That is on us to open up our hearts to let him in and to let him know. Let me close with Jesus' prayer from John 17. This is a beautiful one where he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Of course, he's talking about the cross. He's saying, I'm going to the cross. That hour has come since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So God knows your heart, but do you know him? That is the question this morning. And if you do know him, how often are you asking him to to get into your heart and to work out those rough edges? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we love you, Lord. This is a difficult thing for us to interact with, but we do declare that we ask for you to search our hearts See if there be any grievous or sinful ways within us. Help us, God, lead us in the way everlasting. And we know that is there's nothing we could do. There's nothing we could do to earn that way. You have done all the work, Christ, by living the perfect life and by giving your perfect life as a sacrifice for us so that we might be ransomed to you. If we trust in that, if we follow you, then you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, what an amazing truth that we get to live in. And we ask that you would help to solidify these things in our hearts this week, that we might take this seriously to ask you uh, daily to work on our hearts. And uh, how encouraging it is to know that you already know, God. You already know those things. And yet still, you love us. You long to lead us into a more healthy and full life. And uh, may, we, may we take you up on that offer, God, this morning.